Hey, welcome to the Therapy Thoughts Podcast. This is Tiffany Rowe. I'm a licensed clinical mental health counselor and psychology teacher. I own Mindful Counseling in Orem, Utah, and I'm on a mission to break down mental health stigma. Therapy Thoughts is a podcast all about helping you love yourself and make peace with your mind, body, and food. I'll share some education, tips, interviews, and tools from my clinical experience so you can improve your mental health. Stay tuned as we change the mental health game and talk all about therapy. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 19 of Therapy Thoughts, the podcast. This is Tiffany Rowe, and today I'm going to put on my psychology teacher cap, and we're going to go down the history and talk all about the historical explanations of stigma and mental illness. So really, you could look at this podcast episode like an abnormal psychology lecture. What's the history of mental illness, and how does that impact stigma today? I want to start with the early perspectives. If you look at ancient explanations of abnormal behavior and mental illness, um, it starts off with a very interesting explanation. Now, before I jump into this, let me remind you that when I use the term abnormal, I don't mean that in a stigmatizing way, but it can absolutely be taken or used as a stigmatizing concept. But in the psychology field, we try to measure and categorize and use a dimensional perspective to understand behavior that causes harm to people and causes suffering. So when I say the word abnormal, what I mean is, you know, we could statistically measure this out that most people will not have this experience. Um, another way to measure abnormality is the amount of distress it causes, the amount of impairment in your life that it causes. And so we're talking about abnormal behavior, abnormal psychology, mental illness, uh, mental health struggles. And that's kind of what I'm speaking to. So early on ancient perspectives, we would see folks attribute abnormal behavior to supernatural causes, possession by demons and evil spirits. Um, people would would use exorcism as a treatment form. Um, people would cut a hole into a person's skull to release the harmful spirit and have ritualistic um, ceremonies to try to heal people from their ails. I mean, hopefully we've moved away from this perspective because we know that's extremely uh, stigmatizing and is not based in science or helping people today. If you move forward... 460 to 377 BC, we start the development of medicine and medical concepts. And this helped replace this ancient supernatural theoretic view. And instead, we developed a more, quote unquote, natural theory. Uh, these natural theories rejected the supernatural forces and instead started to say, hey, what can we observe? What do we know? What can be measured? What are causes of these events? Um, you enter modern medicine, and we still rely on some of these ideas. Fast forward to the Middle Ages, and again, we're dealing with supernatural explanations of mental illness, which we we kind of widely reject in the modern world. Middle Ages, people are saying it's demon possession that causes mental illness, um, and this is a prominent explanation for abnormal behavior. We see treatment focusing mainly on prayer, that you can pray away your symptoms, uh, that you can use holy objects or relics, that you can travel to holy places. Uh, we can put you in confinement, again, using 
exorcism, we started to see a dramatic emergence of mass madness in Europe around this time, around the last half of the Middle Ages. So groups of individuals would just be afflicted at the same time with the same disorder or abnormal behaviors. So people would kind of explain this away with um, demon possessions and whatnot. The Renaissance, Renaissance time, we saw a rebirth of the natural and scientific approaches. So, so far you see this kind of back and forth, like supernatural causes. No, it's natural causes. No, once again, it's supernatural. So here we are in the Renaissance. And again, we're saying, okay, maybe this is scientific. Maybe it's more of a natural cause. Towards the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of the Renaissance, we saw this happen. Physicians were focusing on bodily functions and medical treatments. And so the Renaissance, they introduced asylums, the, these special institutions known as asylums. They're places that were reserved to exclusively treat people with mental disorder. Uh, you might think, hey, that's great. Like, we're starting to treat people. But unfortunately, asylums did not provide treatment, and the living conditions were crappy. And usually it was just kind of a place like, hey, we're going to remove you from society and you can stay here. Um, we moved into a reformation between the mid-1700s and mid-1800s. Um, we started to change what asylums were. And we would start to treat patients with more dignity and ethics. Um, asylums, you would see people chained up um, in dark rooms, isolated. And so in this Reformation movement, we started putting them in sunlight and unchaining patients and allowing them to exercise. Staff were required to be kind. Um, the humane treatment of people became a treatment technique of mental illness, which may blow your mind today. But treating people with dignity was was not the focus. We wanted to cut holes in their skulls so the evil spirits would leave, right? So thank goodness this Reformation movement came when it came to mental illness. Um, and we really started seeing significant changes and public attitudes started to shift and conditions started to shift. The modern era, um, we still have a lot of work to do, but the modern approach. I mean, we we accept those with mental disorder as people. Uh, we we understand that professional help, professional attention, applying the scientific, biomedical, psychological methods, that all of that is going to help us understand and treat mental disorder. So, in the modern era, there are a lot of theoretical perspectives that we've developed to understand this. There's no one truth to understanding abnormal, abnormal behavior or psychology in general. There's many theories. Um, I've taught entire semester-long courses just teaching the various theories of abnormal psychology and abnormal behavior and just psychology in general. And then counseling is a whole nother set of theories. And so there's no one true explanation. It depends on what theoretical orientation you have or what belief system you subscribe to. Many theories and perspectives developed during the late 19th century and throughout the 20th century. And lots of thought leaders emerged trying to guide the work on understanding and treating mental disorders. 
We have the biological method, the psychodynamic method, the cognitive method, the behavioral method, the uh, sociocultural method, and, and many other theories of abnormal behavior. And what that has done is given us more to think about and more ways to explain. And today, the best explanation is a combination of all of them. So I'm going to briefly go over those major models um, the biological model is focusing on genetics. Um, it's focusing on genes and genotypes and phenotypes and how medicine and brain function can kind of help and explain mental illness. So we're going to look at neurons. We're going to look at synapses that exist between neurons and brain functions and all the major neurotransmitters. So this is a biological model. Right, We don't really care about your family structure or how many siblings you have or how you felt <coughs> being bullied by this kid in junior high. The biological model is focusing really strictly on your brain, your genetics, your neurotransmitters, and how those clearly influence mental disorder. Um, it's taught us a lot about mental illness and we can do literal brain scans and get a lot of information about this organ, the brain and how to better treat it. And we know medication can save people's lives and support. Um, but there are limitations to this perspective that, I mean, the biological factors are not a full account of any form of mental disorder. Um, but if we were to omit biological factors, we'd be missing a piece of the pie. So it's a crucial piece of it. and But we also don't know exactly how biological factors cause mental disorder. We don't know exactly why these functions and why these neurotransmitters create mental illness and emotional stressors. Um, the lack of more information in this model is, is its biggest downfall. We're not talking about culture or family or stress or other factors. The next one would be the psychodynamic model. All my Freudians out there are going to get super excited. This is all... And what's interesting is I recently did a post on Instagram trying to differentiate coaching from therapy. And so-called coaches, life coach, coaches, wellness coaches, whatever that is, whatever form someone takes on, I've seen them try to differentiate coaching from therapy. And I think they love to take a very raw, dirty snapshot of psychodynamic theory and say that's what therapy is and I really reject that notion um, I have a couple psychodynamic tricks in my tool belt that I'll use in therapy but I mean most therapists today don't operate from this point of view and so this is not therapy just like any of the things I've talked about there's far too many theories and eclectic models to say therapy is one thing and it surely is not the psychodynamic model little bit of a rant, but let me tell you what it does mean if the biological model focuses on brain structures and neurotransmitters. The psychodynamic model is focusing on the mental structures, the internal mental structures. So like this is all Sigmund Freud stuff. It's assuming that mental states and the behaviors come from this subconscious mind and conflicts within this person. Um, it's very intrapsychic, and everything that's happening in your mind is determining your behavior. And there's lots of sexual structures and impulses and drives that determine your mental illness. <coughs> Psychodynamic, excuse me, 
it says that childhood experiences are going to really shape your personality. Um, that we are dealing with an un unconscious mind and trying to bring that conscious, uh, that we have defense mechanisms, all this stuff. Uh, Freud's not the only psychodynamic theorist, but I mean, he's the father of psychology, so it's good to give him some props here. I'm not going to break down this, everything he said or the psychodynamic theory says, but it's all about bringing that unconscious to the conscious. Um, big limitation here is there's very little empirical evidence that supports this perspective. Um, it's lost a lot of its broad mainstream appeal. Um, today we take a lot more short-term therapy approaches. The next major model that's helping us understand and describe mental illness is the humanistic model. I'm a humanistic therapist, uh, partially, and this is a group of theorists <clears throat> that emphasize human growth, choice, choice, and responsibility. So really the main assumption is that people are good um, and people can strive for growth and fulfillment and that people's behavior is determined by their own perspectives of themselves. So we really focus on the person, their characteristics, uh, their unique perceptions. It's a very non-directive approach and understanding of mental illness. A couple big names would be like Abraham Maslow, Carl Rogers, who I love, love, love. Um, if you're going into counseling, uh, what I was taught in grad school is like, you can't, you really can't mess up someone using Carl Rogers theory. Um, he talks all about empathy and positive regard and validation for your client. Rollo May, I mean, there's lots of great people in the humanistic model. Uh, this has really positive outcomes and therapy has several strengths. It's really optimistic and it's tied to the positive psychology movement. <clears throat> Um, it also really emphasizes responsibility, which I love as a therapist. However, I mean, the, it's largely unscientific. There's not empirical support. Um, so all of these, as you hear me explain them, have pros and cons. There is no one one-stop shop that explains every single aspect of this. We just still don't know. I mean, we've come a long way, but there's a, little, a long way to go. The cognitive behavior model would be next in terms of, uh, you know, historical succession. It focuses on thoughts, feelings, and behaviors and understanding how beliefs fuel all of that. How do we change behavior using thought reformation, um, managing emotions, building positive coping skills. Every therapist I know this, these days at least has some cognitive behavioral training in their back pocket. We're really, I mean, you could break down behavioral perspective and cognitive perspectives differently, but... I hope I'm not getting too geeked out on psychology for y'all, but I want to help you understand how this influences our focus today on mental illness and how it influences stigma. Um, what's great about cognitive behavioral perspectives is that we know that we can change behavior through changing your thoughts. And so there's a lot of evidence for this. It's highly tested. <coughs> Excuse me, y'all. And there's, there's just a lot of research that backs up this model. The, one of the, the lackings, I suppose, is that we can really reduce complex behaviors like depression to just single ideas. Um, we can try to say, well, just change your thoughts and this will change your experience. And so sometimes it can become a little too rigid.
Another model I really love because I operate from a feminist perspective is the socio-cultural model. We're explaining mental illness and abnormal behavior, saying that outside influences play a major role in creating our psychological problems. So anytime I talk about um, an eating disorder, I, I want to point out the socio-cultural model. What cultural factors, what social factors, what injustices exist that contribute to our suffering and to this mental illness. And so we look at social institutions um, and perspectives and systems that feed into our psychological problems. I love this theory. We're talking all about culture and gender and communities and family uh, relationships and so the socio-cultural model is really rich in looking at a lot of different facts. Um, it links social life and cultural life and environmental factors and see how they're all correlated with mental health. Um, the biopsychosocial model is kind of a combination of all of these. And so it's, it's our best bet of saying it, the biopsychosocial model stipulates that mental disorder can be attributed to all the variables, biological, psychological, and social. And so we're combining genetics and brain changes and thoughts and emotions and family and societal factors to explain mental illness. Do we still have a perfect explanation? Can we do a blood test and, and know what someone's dealing with? No, because it's a combination of genetics and environment. So much of mental illness is inherited. So much of it is triggered through environmental factors. And those individualized factors, it, if you're going to have it emerge versus someone in your family who is not, there's unique subjective experiences like your temperament and your perception and your unique emotional experience. I mean, there's no way to measure this. There is no blood test that we can, we, we can't perfectly measure something like your subjective experience. And so we, we recognize that we have all of these models and all these historical background explanations to, to give us, you know, some, some help with understanding mental illness, but there is no panacea. There's no perfect way to understand this. It's complex. We're human beings. Our minds and emotions are extremely uh, diverse. But stigma, regardless of perception, is present. And what we know is that, that stigma is a contributing factor to mental illness. Um, people are unwilling to get help because for so long it's been said that it makes you weak, that emotion is weakness, that we have this pull yourself up by your bootstraps culture, that uh, there's a lot of fear that perpetuates stigma. Um, today I did another social media post on Instagram talking about stigmatizing language. And I will argue a couple things really, really perpetuate stigma. And that is lack of education, lack of personal contact and fear. And we get all kinds of inaccurate ideas that are probably stemming from the fact that we think people need to have evil spirits released through their skulls, right? Like this fear is deep seated and this lack of education creates misunderstanding, which creates fear. And so we don't have contact. We're removed from. And so we're scared. And it's, it's people's natural inclination to then have disgrace um, and, and prejudice and stereotyping and discrimination. That's stigma. And now we have a general disgrace from public, from the public in general. And it's, and it's, it's further stigmatized through institutions 
um, and systems. I mean, that's me using that sociocultural perspective, right? But stigma has come through the history and through the lack of education. I mean, how many of us have had required abnormal psychology classes and, and classes about mental illness? None. You have to elect into them into college courses. Um, New York just uh, required some education on um, abnormal psychology and, and mental health in their schooling system, which that needs to be everyone. Because education, we know, is, is, the, is one of the top ways that we can fight stigma. Promoting personal contacts, another way. Educational efforts, we can distribute flyers and brochures and teach people facts about mental illness. Um, coming back to what I was saying, I posted on Instagram today about one way to fight this is to stop stigmatizing language. And the way we speak about mental illness is indicative of the stigma and indicative of the fear and ignorance. We'll say things like psycho, crazy, nuts, insane, words that systemically and systematically have been used to isolate and judge and harm those who are dealing with mental illness. And we use them as descriptors of us versus them today. We use this language to shame and uh, isolate and stigmatize people. And that's one thing every single person listening to this podcast can stop. We can watch our language. We cannot use mental illness descriptors as insults. We can stop calling the weather names of mental illnesses. If you've ever used the word bipolar as an adjective for someone or something, that's stigmatizing language. If you've ever said someone looks anorexic, that's stigmatizing language because anorexia isn't a body size. Anyone in any body size can have anorexia. Um, bipolar is not a descriptor of moodiness. Bipolar disorder is a severe mood disorder. It's not something to describe the weather, right? So this is a good check yourself moment and see how you perpetuate myths and stereotypes through your language. The stigma. We got to talk. We got to open up conversations. We got to talk about therapy and emotions. And we have to stop making emotions weak. I will argue that perpetuates all of this. If we want to make therapy cool, which is kind of my, my angle is is stopping the stigma around getting help, right? We have to say emotions aren't weak. And saying emotions is weak is just, is something that blows my mind because we are human beings. We must have emotion. It means we are alive. So there's so much social justice in this topic. There's a lot of systemic prejudice and oppression when it comes to the mentally ill and how we treat them and how we isolate and punish and use fear and language that is, is harmful. And so today I hope this gives you some perspective into why we are where we are and that we know better and that we can speak better. We can open up and say, hey, yeah, I have anxiety or I have postpartum or oh my goodness, did you know I have a thought disorder or this, this, or that. Another thing I want you to do is to notice how media perpetuates stigma. Um, anytime I teach abnormal psychology, I have my students look for abnormal psychology in the news and in movies. And we always see the stigma perpetuated by people's over-exaggeration of mental illness. And usually like in horror movies, um, using mental illness as, you know, a dangerous, scary thing. Uh, when we know that 
the vast, vast majority of those who are mentally ill are not violent and do not cause harm. In fact, the research shows that they are victims of gun violence and harm um, and oppression and discrimination like I've talked about today. So I hope this has been interesting and helpful for you. Um, If you find yourself wanting to know more about mental illness and abnormal psychology, head over to your local community college and take a class. Uh, You can read about it online. You can volunteer at treatment centers and hospitals. And what you're going to find out is we're all just humans. And I hope and pray for the day where we take people who are struggling with depression and anxiety and psychotic breaks and manic episodes who are struggling in the eating disorder, I pray we take them casseroles and chicken noodle soup and send them cards and say, I hope you get well soon, instead of shaming them and telling them that they're weak. Because mental illness is part of the holistic health that we all experience. It is no less important than physical health. Um, And I hope that we start to change this narrative and we start to open up discussion and education and exposure and empathy. And I think that's a good note to end on that. Empathy is the cure-all is that when we can connect to the emotional experience, though someone who is struggling with a more severe illness than you are, they may have more severe symptoms, but you can relate at the bottom At the end of the day, bottom line is we all have symptoms of mental illness, just to varying degrees. So it's not a matter of us versus them. It's a matter of, oh, yeah, I know what it's like to have sadness. Yours is more severe today. I can empathize with that. So when we take away this us versus you, this fear, this blame, this this ignorant, um, oh, I'm, I'm in danger if you have a mental illness, And we start to really connect and say, wow, you're all just humans, just like me. I think that's the key. So my friends, thanks for tuning in. This is our psychology 101 history theory lecture. Um, Hit me up on Instagram at heytiffanyrowe. You can follow my website at tiffanyrowe.com. And let me know what you think of this and your efforts to fight stigma. I still have like 20 shirts left total. All our other therapies, cool swag is gone. But if you want to snatch up our final ones, it's tiffanyrow.com. All right, my friends, hope you have a great one and may you be well. I appreciate you tuning in and supporting the Therapy Thoughts podcast. If you want to dive deeper into intuitive eating and body image and self-love, head over to tiffanyrow.com. It's the hub of all of my courses, the podcast, my merch, and information about doing counseling and coaching with me. I hope you guys stick around for more. We have lots of exciting interviews and thought leaders coming onto the podcast. So until next time, may you be well.